Hi, this is Lacey from the Golden State Killer Capital, Sacramento, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Happy listening. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know that you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. This is going to be the first time I'm recording on the road. I mentioned in the Facebook group that I'm in Nevada for a wedding, so I'm stealing away a couple of hours of time to myself to get this done. The hotel seems pretty quiet, so I don't think anyone would even know the difference if I never said anything. And as always, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who has subscribed to California Dreaming's Patreon. If you are interested in helping the show and want to gain access to exclusive bonus content, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. This week, I'd like to thank Andy S, M A, and Chloe D C for joining Patreon, and Rebecca Jane for increasing her pledge to the show. And if you would like to make a one-time donation through PayPal, you can do so using our email, California Pod. That's K I L L A F O R N I A P O D at gmail dot com. And you can help in other ways by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and recommending the show in listener groups and on social media. Again, thank you for all of your help in supporting the show and spreading the word. Over the year and a half or so that we've been creating California Dreaming, we have come across our fair share of rotten human beings. On occasion, I'll go back and take a look at some of the criminals that we've discussed. You may have noticed that I've been making a concerted effort to steer clear of crimes involving children lately. I didn't realize that I was covering so many stories involving children who had gone missing or have been murdered. And I do like to change things around to try to find different stories that aren't the same sort of crime. And I think we've been all over the place when it comes to the spectrum of criminal activity. And I like that. And I hope you do as well. The one thing that I kind of noticed that we don't seem to go too much into is when a husband murders their wife. I mean, we've done a few. The first one we kind of touched on a long time ago in episode 6 and 7 was the murder of Bonnie Lee Bakley, whose husband at the time, Robert Blake, is strongly suspected of having a hand in her killing, but he was found not guilty, so her murder is technically unsolved. Then in episode 27, we discussed Vincent Brothers, the case where he was suspected of having driven from Ohio to California, killed his wife, children, and mother-in-law, 
and then drove back to Ohio in a seemingly impossible short amount of time. He was convicted of the crime and currently sits on California's death row. In episode 30, we discussed the murder of Joy Risker, who was murdered by her husband, the minister who was a practicing bigamist. In episode 38, we discussed Robert Piernock. Remember him? He tried to stage that car accident after he plied his wife and daughter with alcohol and sent the car crashing down a hill. He succeeded in killing his wife, but not his daughter. In episode 65, we discussed the murder of Jasmine Fiore, murdered by her husband of only five months. But of all the cases of bad husbands, I came to realize something. We have yet to come across a story that involved a murder for hire. Until today, in this 81st episode of California Dreaming, the tale of a contract killing in Bixby Knowles. At approximately 11 a.m. on the morning of November 8, 2004, the Long Beach, California Police Department received a call from a concerned neighbor in the Bixby Knowles neighborhood of Long Beach. If you are familiar with Long Beach, then you know it is a sprawling suburb of Los Angeles County. And it's like a checkerboard of beautiful homes and some pretty rundown places. It's unique like that. It has its share of wealth, and its share of poverty. It just depends on how close to the water you are, or if you happen to be tucked away in an exclusive enclave like Bixby. When calls come in for emergencies or crimes in progress, Bixby Knowles is usually not the place these types of things tend to happen. And it is just for this reason. The neighbors tend to look out for one another. They know when something or someone is out of place or doesn't belong, and they won't hesitate to pick up the phone to report anything suspicious. Bixby is known to be a neighborhood like that. You just know your neighbors, you exchange waves and niceties. Not like a couple of episodes back with our story on the feuding neighbors. I'm not saying it's all sunshine and rainbows and good times. I'm sure there have been issues to arise. But it seems like if a family is going to make Bixby their home then it's sort of part of the deal. I mean, even if you don't particularly care for your neighbors, if there's something suspicious or shady going on, you're going to call and report it. So on this particular morning, when the neighbor saw what seemed to be a prowler in the backyard of his neighbors, Fred and Lynn Schockner, he was quick to call 911 to report what he was seeing. He called and said he wanted to report what he believed to be an attempted break-in that was in progress. The time was 11.03 a.m. He said it was taking place at his neighbor's home, which is the house just west of where he was located. It was the Schockner residence, he told the dispatcher. It only took a matter of minutes for police to arrive. They went and spoke to the neighbor first, the 911 caller. As they stood there on his porch talking to him, they could see in the window of the Schockner home that their little white dog was barking its face off at the police activity outside the house. Then they saw a woman come to the window to check up on what exactly it was that her dog was barking at. The officer who was speaking to the neighbor made a hand gesture towards the woman in the window, requesting for her to come outside for a moment. She seemed somewhat confused as to what all the commotion was about. She stepped away from the window, came to the front door, and opened it to speak to the officers. 
She told him that she was the homeowner, Lynn Schockner. The officer explained to Lynn that they were there responding to a call from her neighbor that he spotted a prowler in her backyard, and they wanted to know if they could go back there just to check it out and take a look around. She, of course, said that that would be perfectly fine, but to just wait a minute, she was going to have to go grab the key and unlock the gate so they could come in. Lynn shut the front door. She traversed the house, grabbed the key to the back gate, went out the sliding glass door with the intentions of unlocking the side gate to let the officers into the backyard. While she was making her way through the house to head to the backyard to let them in, three uniformed Long Beach police officers stood on Lynn's front porch waiting. I presume thinking that she was going to emerge from the home via the front door and walk with them to let them in the side gate to access the backyard. But that didn't happen. Shortly after the officers had made contact with Lynn at the front door, two more officers pulled up in the alley behind the Schockner home. Just as these officers in the alley arrived, they were utterly shocked at what they saw. That prowler actually hopped over the Schockner's back wall and practically landed right into their laps. Of course they detained him, and when the man was searched, they discovered he had some jewelry in his pocket along with a taser, a cell phone, bloodied latex gloves, and a knife that was more like a dagger, and that was also bloodied. What the hell did they just encounter? And all the while, the first three officers stood on the front porch waiting, waiting for Lynn to come back to the front door, but she never did. They could hear the dog barking, but she wasn't coming back. After a minute or so, they made a decision to enter into the home. But by then, it was clear that they were too late. Something horrific had taken place in the matter of seconds that Lynn shut that front door to look for that key. As the officer stood at the front door, an assailant attacked Lynn, taking her life with a huge slash across the neck. She laid lifeless just outside her back door, her little white dog covered in blood splatter beside her. Absolutely astonishing. Killed right then and there as those officers waited on her porch. You know that an onslaught of hard questions were going to follow. How could something like this have happened? The officers back at the police station could hear over the radio that something was going on, and this was going to be bad. It sounded way worse than just a robbery gone sideways. It was ugly. If there was a prowler reported, why did the officers allow Lynn to go back into her house? The neighbor clearly said there was an attempted break-in in her backyard. Why did they not gain entry into the home sooner? Why did they wait so long? And the most pressing question, how could they have allowed this murder to happen practically under their noses? The decisions those officers made that morning in responding to the call about a prowler were going to be second-guessed by everyone. It was clear some mistakes were made, and someone was going to have to answer to these questions. 
50-year-old Lynn Schockner was dead, and it felt as though the Long Beach Police Department failed to protect her from it happening. The whole thing was incredibly disturbing. And for those officers, it had to have been one of their worst nightmares come true. But for Lynn, from what everyone can tell, did not seem concerned about the potential of a prowler. I mean, a neighbor said that there was someone in her backyard, but Lynn was unconcerned because her dog was not barking at anything out there. And apparently that dog barked at everything. Surely if someone was creeping around the yard, the dog would alert Lynn, right? Well, the dog was alerting her to some activity in the yard, but it wasn't in the backyard. The dog was busy alerting her to the cops in the front of the house, paying no mind to anything that may have been going on in the back. I have barky dogs, and if they are fixated on something in the front, they wouldn't know if a bomb dropped in the backyard, to be honest. So if there was someone lurking around in the backyard, which there obviously was, the dog was busy directing its barkiness towards the front, where the cops were standing on the porch. It was just that absolute perfect moment. The vigilant neighbor who called 911, a dog that barks at its own shadow, three police officers in the front, and at least two squad cars in the back, and Lynn Schockner's throat was slashed right there in the middle of it all, on her own back porch while nobody was watching. It was quite an extraordinary moment. Lynn lived at the house with her son, Charlie. At the time, he was a freshman at Poly High School. He was in class, math class to be exact, when he was summoned to the principal's office. His first thought was, I'm in trouble. But when he got to the office, they had to break the awful news to him. He found himself in a state of utter disbelief. This had to be some sort of sick joke. But his dad, Fred, showed up to pick him up at school. His eyes were sad. He knew something was terribly wrong. As they drove home, they both had difficulty focusing. Fred could barely drive, and it still hadn't sunken in for Charlie yet. This unbelievable news that his mom was dead. The whole ride home, he remained in disbelief. As if when he turned the corner, he would see his home just as he left it earlier that morning. Then he would know this was all a misunderstanding. But that wouldn't be the case. As father and son approached the house, it was clear. This was a crime scene. Yellow tape cordoned off the home. Police, investigators, and just people milling in and out of the house. Neighbors standing around watching, whispering to one another. To Charlie, it felt exactly like watching a crime scene unfold on TV or in a movie. It was a very surreal moment. The first person Charlie thought to call was his uncle Mark, his mom's brother. He did the best he could to articulate what had just happened. Through his shock and his grief and his tears, he tried to put it into words that his mom was dead. Lynn was the youngest of three, the only girl with two older brothers, Mark and John. They had grown up in Ohio, and their father passed away while they were still very young. 
Lynn did not get along with their mother, however, so as soon as she could, she married and headed west to California. But that first marriage was short-lived. For whatever reasons, maybe she rushed into it. She wanted to get out of the family home. She wanted to move far away. Maybe she did it for all the wrong reasons. Whatever the case, it ended quickly. Then one day, by chance, she attended a Dodgers baseball game, and there she met Fred Schockner. He was 14 years her senior, but she was smitten from the start, and the couple hit it off. And Fred was quite a successful man as well. And in short order, Lynn and Fred got married off the coast of California. It was a small affair on a yacht, just the close family and friends. And they made their home in that house there in Bixby Knolls. It would be another 11 years before Charlie would come along. He would be their only son. And maybe it's cliche to say this, but Charlie was Lynn's whole world. The loss of Lynn at such a young age was devastating for him. His uncle Mark took the next flight out to California to be with his nephew and to assist with the funeral arrangements. While all of this was going on, the Long Beach Police Department were up to their eyeballs in this investigation. They were looking at this as an apparent burglary gone bad, trying to piece it together. In the beginning, on the surface, this could have been wrapped up quite nicely. I mean, the burglar slash murderer practically slapped the handcuffs on himself when he hopped the wall and landed right in front of those officers in the alley. Open and shut. Maybe. Maybe not. The detective on the case, Richard Birdsall, he could have just typed up his report for the day, filed it, and made it home in time for dinner. But something was gnawing at the detective. Something troubled him. There was something about this whole scenario that wasn't sitting right with him. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. There was just more to this. And he definitely needed to do more poking around. At the same time, there was a lot of anger directed towards the Long Beach Police Department from all directions. From within, from the media, from the community, from Charlie. He simply could not understand how they could have been standing at his front door while his mother was being murdered just on the other side. The community simply couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that something so violent not only happened right there in their own neighborhood, but the fact that Lynn died in her own home in broad daylight with officers in earshot away. Even other cops in their own department, people who are normally quite tight-knit, they stand up for one another. Even they had to step back and question the actions and the decisions those officers made at the scene. Everyone was pretty much in agreement. With the report of a prowler out back, Lynn should not have been allowed back into her house. They either should have had her come out the front door with them, or at the very least, gone back inside with her. But technically, the officers didn't do anything wrong apparently, other than make a poor judgment call. To the media and the public, this did appear to be a burglary gone wrong. 
but there was one particular thing that stood out right away about this so-called burglar. He came prepared to kill somebody. Let's look at a daylight burglary scenario for a moment. A burglar is prowling around in the daytime in the backyard areas of some homes. If he or she, but in this case he, is looking to see if there's any unlocked back doors or windows, places where nobody is home because it's the middle of the day and people are at work and kids are at school. He wants to get in, ransack the place, take what he can get, and then get out. But in the case of this apparent robbery at Lynn's, the burglar came with some very specific and particular items. Latex gloves, a stun gun, and a dagger. And it was the dagger that stood out most to the detectives. This is not a thing that people just carry around with them for protection or otherwise. I will try to remember to post a picture of it. I mean, this is a very dangerous weapon with only one purpose, to kill. So that right away had detectives thinking the robbery was not the primary motive of this case. So investigators began focusing on this presumed burglar who was caught with all of this incriminating stuff, quite literally red-handed, as he leapt the wall to flee the Schockner's backyard. He was a young man, only 22 years old at the time, a man named Nicholas Harvey. And it was odd. He had no criminal history to speak of. He had never been in trouble with the law previously. So his felonious debut is a violent murder by Dagger in the middle of the day in a quiet, somewhat affluent suburb, presumably to rob some jewelry. Something's not right. Something stinks. And in talking to the young man, he appeared to be quite... Nice, affable, easygoing, polite. Investigators presume that he wanted to be in the good graces of law enforcement. It often happens with people taken into custody. Harvey even told the investigators that he had one day hoped to become a police officer or to work in law enforcement in some capacity. Yet, there he was, under arrest for robbery and murder. Nicholas Harvey, just a handful of years removed from high school, was quite an athlete in his time, and he still religiously worked out to keep in tip-top shape. He was very fit and very muscular, and he had a job as a personal trainer at a local gym in the town where he lived, Port Wainimi. And if you're listening, you're thinking, wait, what? Port Wainimi? That's like way up the coast from Long Beach more than 70 miles away. Okay, so what's this guy doing driving that far to commit a robbery and to come away with just a handful of jewelry? It seemed hardly even worth the time, distance, and gas to come down all that way. Yeah, definitely a red flag for detectives. So they asked him, what are you doing down here in Long Beach? Why are you coming all this way to break into a house? And at first, he said something like he heard that this was a good area. Again, what? Detectives called BS. This did not make any sense whatsoever. A little more digging and Harvey came up with kind of a somewhat better answer, sort of. 
He said he didn't want to be in his own area. He explained that he worked at the local gym, that he's a personal trainer, and he worked with many of the local police officers and he did not feel comfortable committing any crimes in the area out of the concern that he might be recognized by some of the locals or law enforcement. This didn't seem plausible either. Officers are just not buying it. That he's going to come down that far to burglarize a home and then go back. So they kept digging. Then they considered the jewelry that Harvey was caught with. The items that he had in his pocket when he was arrested. It was all fake. All of it. Lynn had valuable jewelry. Gold and diamonds. There were other valuables in the home as well that could have been easily grabbed and taken. So the cops are thinking, okay, so you're going to drive all this way in the middle of the day and you end up killing someone, but you grab the most worthless jewelry in the house? So yeah, either Nicholas Harvey totally sucks at burglary or burglary was not his primary motive. The detectives continued peppering him with questions, demanding answers that made some sense. But Harvey did not budge from his story. After several hours, they just threw up their hands and walked out of the interrogation, frustrated that there was more to this story. And they knew that they needed to get to the bottom of this because none of this was what it seemed. Detectives, with all the suspicion in the world, really had nothing more than what Harvey had to tell them. Nobody's going to make an almost 150-mile or 240-kilometer round trip to break into a house, yet here we are. They had nothing else to go on. No other ideas, no proof of anything else. Well, that is until someone picked up the phone and called the Long Beach Police Department. Turns out this caller was an acquaintance or friend of Harvey's. And he had quite an enticing bit of information to share with investigators. Nick Harvey approached him one day and offered him a couple hundred dollars to give him a ride to Long Beach. And this guy was like, heck yeah, I'll drive you down to Long Beach. Sweet deal. Easy money, right? They made arrangements to meet at the park and ride near Port Wanimi. And using Harvey's car, he drove him down to Long Beach. Along the way, Harvey even told him what he was headed there for. He called himself an enforcer for some local Long Beach drug traffickers and that he needed to go down there for reasons related to that. The driver insisted that he had no clue anyone was going to be murdered. Well, even though this guy came forward, investigators continued calling BS on his story too and promptly took him into custody as well. The notion that this guy thought that Harvey was some kind of drug enforcer and that he was driving him down to Long Beach for this nonsensical story, and most incredulous of all, that the suggestion that suburban housewife and mother, Lynn Schockner, was somehow involved in some nefarious drug dealing activities and had a hit put out on her life for said activities was absolutely ludicrous. Lynn had lived a very low-key life, married to a man for a quarter of a century, who, as I mentioned in the beginning, was very successful. Not only was he a top earner in the field of aerospace, he was also the benefactor of a sizable family inheritance. And according to Lynn's brother, Mark, Fred Schockner provided his sister with a life their family growing up could have only dreamed of. Back in Ohio, they were working class, 
They never met a millionaire in their lives until Lynn met Fred. And he showered Lynn with gifts and jewels and, of course, that lovely home in Bixby Knolls. When Mark first visited her, his sister could hardly wait to introduce him to her brand new life. And to him, at the beginning, she seemed happy. He knew that because her first marriage had faltered so quickly, his sister went into this one with a renewed sense of resolve and fortitude to make this one work. And once Charlie came along 11 years into the marriage, Lynn's world was finally complete, and her life became devoted to raising her boy the best way that she could, just as every other devoted parent would. And those who knew the Shockners, neighbors, friends, and people in the community they would all scoff at the notion that anyone in the family had any ties to drug dealers, much less be targeted for execution by anyone of the sort. Not because they were affluent or upscale, for nothing else other than the fact that they seemed so normal. But Mark, Lynn's brother, he would have a dissimilar opinion of the family dynamic. He knew his little sister and her husband a bit more intimately, he and Lynn were very close, and they had a bond, and he cared for and loved her very much. But he didn't much care for her husband, Fred. Uncle Mark, unfortunately, did not get to visit with his sister and his nephew as much as he would have liked to. Just as life took Lynn from Ohio to California, life took him clear across the United States to Georgia. But whenever he did visit, he was able to get a taste of what Fred was like as a person and as a husband and found him to be somewhat off-putting. And you will come to find that that is an understatement. He would describe Fred as obnoxious, a braggart, someone who liked to talk about all the things that he had and the things that he had acquired and accumulated. And whenever they went out to dinner, Fred would dominate the entire conversation he would talk constantly about himself and his tremendous success. Yet, somehow, Uncle Mark would always get stuck with the dinner tab. Every. Single. Time. In Mark's words in an interview he gave, cheap, totally opinionated, absolutely self-involved. It got to the point that whenever Lynn made plans to visit Mark in Georgia, Mark would make sure to tell her, to feel free to leave Fred in California. She and Charlie were welcome to come and stay for however long they desired. Just don't bring Fred. And it would be during one of those visits his sister made without Fred that Mark would confront her. He could see that Lynn was becoming the invisible partner in the relationship. Not only did Fred make Lynn feel insignificant, he completely manipulated and monopolized every aspect of her life. Mark could see that Fred was in complete control of the marriage, and Lynn, somewhere along the line, lost herself. After this talk, Mark wrote down his feelings in a scathing letter to Fred, and he told him exactly what he thought of him. He handed it over to Lynn and said, I dare you to give this to him. He didn't know at the time if she ever did give it to him or not, but it would only be a couple of years after he penned that letter and handed it to his sister that she reached out to him and told him that she and Fred, after 25 years of marriage, were headed for divorce. Mark was thrilled 
with the news. Fred had packed up his things and was no longer residing at the family home in Bixby Knolls. Even young Charlie, only 14 at the time, could see that the breakup of the family was certainly a trauma. He seemed to recognize that the bigger trauma was staying together. He could see that a darkness had lifted off of his mother. He could tell that she was happier. It was like a sense of freedom and independence enveloped her. She wasn't holding in her feelings anymore, and the feelings coming to the surface were good feelings. Excitement, joy, enthusiasm. A blissfulness surrounded Lynn that Charlie had never seen before. Free. She was free. But Charlie's mother's evolution, coming into her own, stepping out with her newfound independence, it all came crashing down with a dagger swipe to the jugular. When Mark learned of his sister's murder, his mind immediately went straight to Fred. Even though his next thought was, there's no way Fred could do such a thing, in spite of the fact he couldn't stand the guy, he couldn't think it was possible. And besides, Nicholas Harvey, this 22-year-old gym rat from Port Wainimi, he was the killer. There was no apparent connection between him and Fred. They had no ties. And obviously Fred didn't have a hand in the actual killing of Lynn. They caught the guy, bloody dagger and all. But Mark's mind could not help but go to that place where he couldn't help but think it. What if, what if Fred had something to do with this? Lynn did have the locks on the home replaced when Fred moved out. Now, dreamers, that immediately sent up red flags for me when I read that detail of the case. Couples break up and marriages end in divorce. Things don't work out, and sometimes it can be acrimonious. There are situations that are bitter. There can be hostility. But how bad do things have to be for the locks to be changed? That, to me, insinuates a level of fear and distrust. I'm sure there are plenty of reasons to change locks when someone moves out. But to me... It paints a picture of a woman who is worried that her estranged husband will try to gain entry into the home when she doesn't want him to or has asked him not to and does not believe that he will comply with her wishes. She is either protecting herself, her child, or perhaps some assets that she does not want him to have access to, at least not yet at this stage of the separation. And what message does the changing of the locks send to Fred? How does he perceive this? I could see him taking this quite seriously and very personally. I mean, they are married, so all things should be equal. But from what Uncle Mark had described it, it did not seem like Fred treated Lynn with any kind of respect. And now she's gone and locked him out of the house changed the locks to make sure that he couldn't get in without her permission. I don't think Fred liked that at all. The detectives found out from Charlie that the locks had been changed, so they investigated that angle. 
that perhaps the person or company that Lynn hired to install the locks while there were eyeballing the place, that they saw Lynn live there alone with a young son and that she had a lot of nice things, and maybe they helped themselves to an extra set of keys and came back to burglarize. What better place? They know the basic layout of the house. The backyards are relatively private, or so they thought. The homes are nice. And Lynn was an unfortunate victim of a burglary gone really bad. So Lynn was laid to rest. Lynn's brothers set aside their feelings about Fred and came together in their time of sorrow. They needed to be there for one another, as a family should. But there was a thing that kind of lingered over Fred. That letter. The contemptuous letter that Mark penned, laying it all out to bear. Telling Fred exactly what he thought of him, the way he acted, and the way he treated his sister. Turns out, Lynn had given it to him. Just a few minutes after the funeral services had come to an end and everyone hugged and exchanged commiserations, Fred actually brought it up. He asked Mark, Do you still believe that? I mean, what's Mark supposed to say at his sister's funeral? Oh yeah, I totally think you're a jackhole douche hat for treating my sister like junk. No, he held back. He told him it was all water under the bridge. Let bygones be bygones. And once the dust settled, the priority was moving forward to keep the family close, sticking together, and staying strong for Charlie. Fred moved back into the Bixby home. Lynn's family continued to rally around them to lend support as best they could in the wake of the senseless and tragic loss of Lynn. Police were still tirelessly working this case. The news had gotten out that an accomplice was in custody, the getaway driver. But it still left the neighbors wondering how many people could have possibly been behind this. The violent nature of Lynn's death had them shook. And the way the police handled it didn't leave them feeling any more confident. Police had two jobs, to protect and to serve and they did not do either one for Lynn. The perception of an incompetent police force loomed, and it had neighbors worried if there were others connected to this. Was there a potential for them to come back? And then the trepidations turned to anger and disbelief when the word got out that the Long Beach Police Department let the driver go. What? They let him go? Yep. The condemnation of the police department had been harsh and unforgiving. The fact that Lynn was so violently murdered as police stood outside her door, and now they've let the driver go? Emotions ran high, intense and raw. Don't think the police department wasn't reeling from this case. They weren't out defending their actions or the officers who took this call. It wasn't like that at all. The ripple effect of this ran through the entire department. The officers involved in this were terribly distraught over it, one of them even taking a leave, struggling so much so it led to a nervous breakdown. The officers didn't just dust themselves off and move on to the next call, no. 
This deeply hurt the department. And the detective on the case, Detective Birdsall, he knew. He knew that everybody was angry with the police department. Lynn's family, the neighbors, the community, the media, and they were angry with themselves. And Birdsall would be the first to admit it. They failed to do their job as they failed to protect Lynn's life. Fred was even entertaining the idea of filing a civil lawsuit against the police department for the egregious failure. I mean, the Long Beach Police Department is getting hit from every direction, and they're doing their best to weather the storm. So when Detective Birdsall arrested an accomplice to the murder, the driver, and, you know, a driver in a crime like this is just as culpable as though he held the dagger in his hand himself, and then in very short order, released the alleged accomplice. The news of this was akin to throwing gasoline on an already raging inferno. Birdsall knew it, but he did it anyway. He let the guy who told them that he drove the killer to Lynn's house go. But he did so for a reason. Detective Birdsall had a plan to bug the accomplice's cell phone. Nick Harvey wasn't talking, so maybe the accomplice would be. They had the killer, but here's the thing. They did not for one second believe this rubbish about Harvey being a drug enforcer. It was complete baloney. So the hope was that by releasing the driver, that his cell phone calls would tell the bigger story as to what exactly was going on here. But the plan hit a snag. After the driver was let go, he pretty much went radio silent. He didn't talk to anyone that had anything to do with any of this. His communications were simple, mundane, everyday, day-to-day stuff. Nothing to do with Nick Harvey, nothing to do with Lynn Schachner, nothing to do with drug kingpins, dealing, trafficking, enforcing, nothing. The only person he ever talked to tied to this was Nick Harvey, and Nick Harvey was in custody and he wasn't going anywhere. The driver was nothing more than an unwitting bystander that did Harvey a favor for that day. He wasn't part of a larger scheme. He didn't take part in any murder conspiracy. He had nothing to do with it. Everything he said was truthful. He was just doing a favor for a friend. The investigation into the driver was another dead end. So they refocused on Nicholas Harvey the young man who wielded the dagger that took Lynn's life. Detectives kept digging. Remember, Harvey was like this regular, average, everyday guy, no criminal history, just totally unassuming, ordinary, yet committed this extraordinary crime. They spoke to Harvey's family, and the fact that he would do something like this had them all scratching their heads as well, completely gobsmacked that he's a killer. There was no indication that there was any aspect of Harvey on any level, anywhere. Nothing about him. Nothing of his persona. It just doesn't fit. To his family, they characterized him as one who worked out obsessively. He was known to use steroids. He worked at the gym as a personal trainer. Occasionally, he worked as a bouncer at a bar. By and large, he really wasn't about anything else. That was all he kind of did. He never had any troubles with law enforcement, never been arrested, 
He wasn't the type of person that brought about any kind of negative attention. Yet, he suddenly found himself up to his eyeballs in just about the most serious trouble anyone could possibly find themselves in. Things began to come into focus for investigators when they obtained a subpoena for Harvey's cell phone records. Just prior to Lynn's murder, he was making numerous phone calls to a man named Frank Yaramillo, who went by the nickname El Cubano. He used to be the manager of the gym where Harvey worked as a personal trainer. Why would he be calling a former boss just minutes before the killing took place? It definitely struck investigators as odd, unless he was calling this guy because he had something to do with the crime. They had yet to connect any dots, so detectives were looking at any possible leads to try and figure out exactly what it was that brought Nick Harvey to the Schockner home on that fall morning. The first thing investigators did was go back and talk to Harvey again and to try to squeeze more information out of him. And they needed to hurry because he hadn't been arraigned yet in court. Once that happens, he was going to be assigned a public defender and the public defender was going to tell him to keep his mouth shut. So time was of the essence. As soon as they could, once they had this information about Frank Yaramillo, they went right back to Harvey to confront him, to question him as to why this person popped up on his phone just as he's on his way to the Schockner home. But Harvey continued to stick to his story. He went to the house to burglarize it and it went wrong. And they called BS again. They told him, we don't believe you. They've been doing this job for a really long time. And they reminded him that it will benefit him to tell the truth. This was his last chance to come with it. To be a stand-up guy about this. To take responsibility. And do what's best for himself because they knew there was more to this story. And the detectives were not going to let up that this is their job to find the truth and that they were going to lean on him until he coughs it up. And soon, Nick Harvey's story began to turn a little. He said, I might as well break it down for you guys. I was hired to commit a burglary. He said he didn't know why, He didn't ask why. Okay, and he was told that there was a chance that he could steal some very valuable things worth a lot of money. He was told he could have anything he could get, plus he was paid $2,500. And the cops were like, dude, quit insulting our intelligence here. They knew that he wasn't hired simply to burglarize the house. He was hired to kill Lynn Schockner. Now, dreamers, I don't know Nicholas Harvey, If the steroids messed with his thinking or if he got dinged in the head with a dumbbell one too many times. But the severity of the crime that he committed, the magnitude of what he did to Lynn and her family, the momentousness of the amount of trouble that he's in just doesn't really seem to be registering with this guy. When the detectives accused him of being hired to kill Lynn, his reaction was as if he had told them a joke And they were able to guess the punchline before he could deliver it. Like, all right, all right, you guys got me. I was hired to kill Lynn. Man, you guys are good. He told them that. That they were good. Harvey finally admitted that Frank Yarmio hired him to kill Lynn Schockner. 
and to try and make it look like a burglary. He was given $2,500 up front and he would receive another payment of $2,500 when it was done. Okay, so now the investigation is getting somewhere. But this brings up a whole bunch of other questions beyond the obvious one. Why would someone, namely Nick Harvey, risk everything, his freedom, his entire future, potentially his life, by killing someone for only $5,000? I have no reasonable answer for that, except that people have killed for less. Perhaps they fed him a false narrative about who the Schockners were. Maybe he thought that he was doing something super important. Maybe he thought it was cool or fun to be a contract killer. But the bigger question for the moment was, who the hell is Frank Yaramillo, and why is he hiring this dum-dum to kill Lynn? The police now finally had a place to go with their investigation to try and unravel this, which is now turning into some kind of conspiracy to kill an unassuming suburban housewife and mother. Nick Harvey and Frank Yaramillo met over some chips and salsa at a local El Torito restaurant to discuss the details of the murder for hire. That's where the first $2,500 was exchanged. Harvey was asked by the investigators what he did with the money and he explained that he had just moved and he needed some furniture. He did say that when it came time for him to do the actual crime, he began to have second thoughts about it. Even right up to the moment that he was in Lynn's backyard, as he stood there contemplating what he was about to do, he nearly got to a point in his thoughts that he should just leave. He wanted to leave. And just as he was standing at that moral crossroads, Lynn walked out, and it suddenly became a now-or-never moment. He quickly killed Lynn, ran inside and staged some ransacking, grabbed some jewelry, and ran back out. All the while, three Long Beach police officers standing just on the other side of Lynn's front door. And as he hurriedly tried to make his escape, he leapt over the wall, only to find police waiting for him. And during this confession, Harvey had a question for the detectives if they could answer. How did the officers get to the scene so fast? And they told him, neighbors have eyes and ears. They saw him getting out of his car and going into Lynn's backyard. Harvey had no idea that the cops were already there on the other side of the wall. And when he got over it, his first thought was that this was a setup by Frank Yaramillo, that he had double-crossed him. So Harvey's plan was to just go ahead and stick with his original story, that he was there to burglarize the home and hope to plead a second-degree murder, which wouldn't land him in jail for life. And when he got out, his plan was to go and take care of Frank Yaramillo himself. The detectives just sat there and took the story in. They just let Nicholas Harvey keep on talking. Let him keep thinking that whatever it was he wanted to think as to what Yaramil may or may not have done. They turned their sights on Yaramil's phone records next. And what investigators found finally began to make some sense of this seemingly senseless crime. And it was quite a revelation. They found, of course, that Yaramil was indeed speaking to Nick Harvey. But they also found 
that he was frequently speaking to none other than Fred Schockner. It was quite a surprise to hear, considering that they had never even really thought of Fred as possibly being involved up to that point. He had been cooperative with police, unlike many suspects of cases past. He seemed to grieve appropriately. Fred told the detectives that even though he had moved out of the family home, the split was amicable. Even Lynn's family hadn't mentioned the potential of Fred's involvement. However, Charlie did ask the detectives at one point, did they think his dad may have had a hand in this? Even though the investigation was taking them in that direction, they couldn't tell him the truth. It was no easy task for these detectives to look Charlie in the eye and to tell him that they were doing everything they could to catch the people involved in this, and then they had to reassure him that they did not suspect his father. If they had, they would have already looked into it. Rest easy, don't worry about it. They told Lynn's family the same thing. They had no choice. If they let on that they were investigating Fred, word might get back to Fred, then everybody would stop cooperating. And then detectives had to be comfortable with allowing Charlie to remain at home with his dad. And they had to continue to allow Uncle Mark to think that Fred had nothing to do with this, even though the investigation was leading them there. Now, the embattled police department had to tread carefully at this point. They couldn't just go out there and wrangle up Frank Yaramillo and Fred Schockner and just throw around murder charges. You're charged with murder, and you're charged with murder, and everybody's charged with murder. No. All they had to go on was the word of a possible co-conspirator who's just confessed to murder and has been lying to police pretty much from day one. And with the public coming down hard on the way they handled Lynn's murder, starting with allowing her to walk back into her own home to begin with, they needed some seriously hard evidence before they could start taking anybody into custody on this case. The greatest travesty, aside from Lynn's murder, would be to bring these people into custody, charge them, take them to trial, and fail to prosecute them. They needed to make sure they built a solid, airtight case. They couldn't risk any more bad publicity swirling around them regarding it. The feelings towards the Long Beach Police Department were so frigid, so they were going to continue to allow Charlie, Lynn's family, the media, and the public to believe that this was a burglary gone wrong. Oh, and by the way, they did find one of Fred Schockner's business cards in Nicholas Harvey's wallet, so there was that, but that still wouldn't be enough. And the police department could not go to the media to try and defend the actions of the officers while the reporters and the news were maligning the department for what happened to Lynn. Because if they were to go out there and try to make a statement about it, it could be very damaging to the case against the suspects. They did not want anyone to be alerted as to what was going on as much as possible. And they certainly didn't want any of them, especially Fred Schockner, to lawyer up. They were moving as fast as they could on the case to get this resolved so they could at least do some sort of damage control. Now that they had this potentially damning information that Fred had hired Yarmio to kill his wife, 
and that Yaramio subcontracted the job out to Harvey and that they had some phone records to corroborate the story. They set out to prove that Fred had masterminded the plot to have his wife killed. They wanted to try to get the men talking somehow, but it did not look like that was going to likely happen. So detectives kept coming back to Fred, kept talking to him, all the while not letting on that they suspected him of being the one behind it all. They tried to come up with reasons to contact him so he wouldn't become suspicious. It was kind of a game. The hope was that they would say something that would trigger a bit of worry in Fred, just enough to get him to pick up the phone and contact Yeremio. But the investigation, it felt like, was moving at a snail's pace. They were able to connect Harvey to Yaramio and Yaramio to Fred, but it wasn't nearly enough to put together a proper case. But they kept reaching back out to Fred, dropping one question here and another question on another day. And then they finally hit him with just the right inquiry, it seemed. Investigators asked Fred if he happened to know anybody from the Port Wainimi area, you know, the city where the hitman lived. And Fred said yes, yes, he did know someone from Port Wainimi, Frank Yaramio. They met some time back when Yaramio worked at a gym in Long Beach. Eventually, Fred had purchased a used BMW from the guy for $25,000 and wrote him a check for that amount on October 25th, 2004 only 12 days before Lynn's murder. Yaramio was due to deliver the car when he got back to stateside. He was in New Delhi on a business trip. Police knew that was a lie. They had been keeping tabs on Yaramio's phone activity, and he was not in New Delhi. He was at home in Woodland Hills, California. Fred continued talking to detectives, telling them that he had been loaning money to Frank Yaramillo over the course of time, in the ballpark of about $100,000. And this seemed to line up with what investigators had found out about Yaramillo. He had a taste for fancy things, and he especially had a fetish for expensive wristwatches. He was living a lifestyle as though he was made of money, but he didn't really seem to have a full-time job so the puzzle pieces started falling into place. It was a relationship of convenience. Yaramil was ostensibly borrowing money from Fred, but what was Fred gaining in return? Well, basically, Yaramil was indebted to him. Fred had him on the hook for a lot of money, and there was no way Frank was ever going to be able to pay him back, even if he wanted to. So, Fred comes to Yaramio with a proposition. You do this thing for me, and we're square. That was the working theory detectives came up with. Fred was the one who put together the plan to get rid of his wife. He was a very wealthy man, and he used that over time to his advantage by giving Yaramio large sums of money under the premise of them being loans getting him so deeply indebted to him that he would have no way to ever pay him back. And then when the time was right, he'd make this proposal that would absolve Yaramio of his debt and would absolve Fred of his wife. It was a win-win. 
And then Yarmil found Nick Harvey, a guy willing to do the crime for a very, very discounted rate. But once Fred was made to fess up to his connection to Frank Yarmil, he began actually making contact with the police, calling them with information instead of police calling him to ask questions. It appeared as though he was looking to keep up his role of cooperative grieving widower. They, of course, recorded every call. He called them to tell him he had some information that the check that he wrote to Yaramil was cashed on October 29th, the $25,000 for the BMW. He said that he had tried to get in touch with Yaramil that day to get an update as to the status of the BMW because it hadn't been delivered yet. And by the way, in the memo line of the check that Fred gave to Yaramio, it said, Delivery 11-7 to 11-8. Lynn was murdered on the 8th. The detective asked him if he asked Yaramio if he was back in the country, and Fred said he only left a voicemail. And then oddly, on the recording of this phone call that Fred made to police, he kind of seemed to be enjoying chatting it up with the officers. Like, it was pretty cool that he was getting away with this, so he thought. The detective asked him if he had anything else to say or any questions for them, and he told them, happy fishing, and then he laughed. And then he asked what was taking so long with the investigation, The detective began to explain when Fred told him he had a call on the other line and he clicked over and put the other caller on hold and clicked back over to the detective. It just so happened the caller on hold was Frank Yaramillo. When Fred came back, he floated a theory regarding his wife's murder. Maybe Harvey, he called him the kid from Point Wanimi, Perhaps he knew a person or persons involved with the company that Lynn hired to change the locks on the house. Or maybe it was somebody Lynn knew or associated with that somehow was connected to Harvey. And he got some information that she lived alone and had some valuables and decided to do this. They eventually hung up and Fred clicked back over to Yaramil, who was still holding. That call was also recorded. And it wasn't the only call between Fred and Yaramil that was recorded. There were at least 60 of them. None of them gave away anything incriminating. The men were very, very careful about what they had to say to one another. So it was time to try a different tactic. They were going to do some undercover investigating. And this would be spearheaded by undercover detective Chris Nelson. Detective Nelson had the information from Nick Harvey that Fred and Yarmil were in cahoots on this. So you ask yourself, what are these two men needing to concern themselves most with right now? The fact that the idiot Yarmil hired went and got himself caught. Is he going to talk? Is he going to start naming names to get himself a better deal? He's got nothing to lose by rolling over on them. This has got to be concerning to both men, right? So the first ruse Detective Nelson was going to attempt was to call Fred and pretend that he was Nick Harvey. And to make it even more authentic, he went over to the jail and used the inmate phone that has the pre-recorded message that the call was originating from a correctional facility. But Fred hung up. He refused to accept the charges. 
Detective Nelson waited about five minutes before trying a second time. This time, Fred accepted. Without giving up anything incriminating, knowing that this call was going to be recorded, he didn't want to spook Fred. He said something like, Hey, this is the guy that did that work for you at your house. I'm going to need the other half of my money for an attorney. Fred told him he was going to have to talk to his guy, and he hung up. Of course, Fred was speaking of none other than Frank Yaramillo. So that ruse really didn't work with Fred. So he was going to try to hit up Yaramillo next, and this was going to be a little bit more challenging. The idea was Detective Nelson was going to pretend to be Nick's Uncle John to set a trap to ensnare Yaramillo in. He called him up, and he explained that he was Nick's uncle, his mom's sister. She had called him, freaking out about the trouble that her sons got himself into, and asked him to come down to help. The detective wanted to come off as non-threatening as possible as to not scare him off or to tip him off. Detective Nelson called and said that he was Nick's Uncle John, that his nephew needed money to retain an attorney, and he said that either him or Fred should be willing to help him out because he didn't want a public defender. Yarmiel tried to explain that he doesn't really know Nick Harvey all that well, and he didn't really have the money to help him out. The detective said, you know, if there was any way he could help, but Yarmiel said, sorry, no can do. So the detective played his last card. He insinuated in so many words that if his nephew didn't get some kind of help soon, he was going to have to go to the cops. Yaramil bit. He told Uncle John that he would call him back the next day. The hope was that sometime between then and tomorrow, that Yaramil would call Fred and ask him for money to help. And boom, everybody's incriminated. But that call didn't happen. Uncle John called back the next day and asked him if he was able to get a hold of Fred and he said that he hadn't, but he'd be able to help out. Yaramil asked when would be a good time to meet, and he'd have some money for him. He asked Uncle John if he knew where the Thousand Oaks Mall was. That was off of Lynn Road. Yeah, Lynn Road. Spelled exactly like Lynn's name, L-Y-N-N. The irony didn't strike Yaramil, but then again, he may not have known or remembered Lynn's name. But the irony was not lost on Detective Nelson. So towards the end of November, the same month that Lynn was killed, just a few weeks later, Detective Nelson headed over to the Thousand Oaks Mall. He was pretty nervous. Not about meeting with Yaramio, but how much was riding on this to go the way it's supposed to go. He worried if Yaramio would show up, if anything would go wrong, They'd be back to square one. If things went right, then they've got him. Yaramio showed up, driving a really nice Lexus SUV. The detective had a body cam on him and recorded the whole thing. Yaramio had $1,000 for him, for now. He explained that he couldn't be moving too much money around because they're monitoring my accounts. Detective Nelson asked who was monitoring his accounts. He said, detectives. Oh, they're looking at you? Yeah, they are. 
Detective Birdsall was hiding nearby in a van listening. Once the $1,000 was handed over, Yaramil was done. That was all they needed. In short order, they took Frank Yaramil into custody. In the interrogation room, they asked him, who was this John guy that he was giving money to? He played dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. Then, surprise, Uncle John, a.k.a. Detective Nelson, appeared in the room. Yaramil's face contorted instantly. He hung his head, and then he just spilled his guts. He gave up the whole story. He was finished. But he didn't quite know how finished he actually was. But I'll get back to that. I wanted to pause the investigative part of the story for a moment and talk a little bit about the Shockners. Almost three years after Lynn was brutally murdered, Charlie and his uncles Mark and John and Detective Birdsall sat down and talked to a journalist with the local Long Beach newspaper, the Press-Telegram. They shared some dreadfully sad and haunting memories about Lynn and what happened to her. A couple of weeks after Charlie's mom was killed, the police had stopped in at his house to talk to him and his dad to provide them with an update to keep them apprised of the ongoing investigation. After they talked, a quick-thinking 14-year-old Charlie came up with a reason to speak to Detective Birdsall out front, privately, away from his dad. In a whisper, barely audible to the detective, Charlie asked, How is my dad involved? I know he's involved somehow. This sent a chill through the detective, and it stayed with him for the duration of the investigation and beyond. The secrets that were kept behind the closed doors of the Schachner home had been very well kept. The life they had before the murder even happened, if you can call it a life. Fred Schachner had for years viciously and violently abused his wife and son. Charlie, having said in an interview, I cannot remember one moment where I truly felt love for my dad. All he cared about was money. Lynn and Charlie found themselves in a classic cycle of physical, emotional, psychological, and financial abuse. The couple, as I had said in the beginning, had met at Dodger Stadium in 1978, and it seemed as though, right from the start, Fred was heavy-handed, officious, and controlling, and Lynn was subservient. He was 14 years older than her and wealthy from both inheritance and his work in aerospace. Lynn decided to look past these personality traits Fred exhibited and move forward with their relationship. They tied the knot a year later. But things like these usually don't improve over time. And indeed, they did not. They grew worse. Fred he would completely lose it over relatively trivial things. Things like his shoelaces being too long or his food wasn't to his liking. He'd scream and he'd throw and break things. He'd beat his wife and when Charlie came along 11 years into the marriage, he'd beat him as well. 
Fred would spend days on end, ranting and disparaging Lynn. He'd hurl insults and verbal abuses like they were going out of style. And it would swell into a brutal climax that manifested into severe physical attacks. He once grabbed a stapler and put staples through her skin, right into Lynn's arms. Then, once the dust settled, the I'm sorry's would come, the regrets, the acts of contrition, the seeking of repentance through gifts and jewelry. But there would never be any genuine change. He would do things, big things. He'd apologize to Charlie by taking him to Disneyland and to Lynn by taking her to Hawaii. And he constantly showered Lynn with jewels. Constantly. Because that's how much he was beating her. Then before long, the cycle would repeat. Textbook abuse. Charlie did what he could to avoid his dad as much as he possibly could. He wrapped himself up in as many after-school activities as possible. At dinner, he'd quietly eat his food until he would be excused to his room, and he'd be in there by himself for hours on end. Of course, Fred's behaviors only compounded the seclusion and the loneliness. Neither Lynn nor Charlie had company over very often. Lynn had very few, if any, friends, and none of them were close. Charlie would seldom invite any of his friends from school over to his house either, because according to him, his dad's behavior was incredibly bizarre and often improper. He told the Press-Telegram that his dad constantly used foul language, or he'd do strange things like go swimming in the pool in the backyard naked. But Charlie didn't know any better. He didn't know any different. It would come out later that Fred Schockner actually had quite a sexual appetite. He kept a stash of not only pornography, but also pornographic pictures of Lynn as well. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I do question how willing Lynn was to actually participate in the taking of those photographs. Because if she wasn't, then it was just another aspect of this relationship that was abusive. As for Lynn's brothers, they could barely stand being around Fred. When the families got together for holidays or birthdays or special occasions, Fred was an instigator and he stirred up problems. He disrespected their mother, his mother-in-law, and he would create trouble between himself and her brothers. And they knew that this was Fred's way of making sure that they didn't want him around at their gatherings. And that, in turn, would mean Lynn would not be at these gatherings either, further isolating his wife from her family. More textbook abuse, right? They couldn't say it then, but they could certainly say it now. They hated Fred. Then, towards the end of 1999... Lynn found the courage to start letting it be known that it was time. She was done. No longer could she withstand the relentless, merciless abuse. She was ready to take back her life and save Charlie from having to go through any more of this. But she didn't want to leave the home. She did not want to uproot Charlie. She wanted Fred to leave. So she asked him to move out. 
and she also penned a document. She titled it, Lynn's Personal Bill of Rights. It was a list of 33 things that would just shatter your heart. Pleased to be respected. Wanting to be accepted. Here are a few examples. Number three. I have the right to say no to anything when I feel I'm not ready, it's unsafe, or it violates my values. Number nine. I have the right to terminate conversations with people who make me feel put down and humiliated. Number 20. I have the right to be happy. Number 22. There is no need to smile when I'm crying. Number 26. I have a right to be in a non-abusive environment. Number 33. I have the right to feel weak and vulnerable, for that is when I'm being real. Dreamers, I searched and I tried to find the entire document, but I was unable to. Otherwise, I would have read the whole thing for you. These excerpts are what were published in the Press-Telegram article. From what I understood, Fred did move out, but he launched a campaign of begging for forgiveness, and he peppered Lynn with promises. He wrote letters expressing his love for her and wishes to work through their marital discord. In one of the letters, he said, I never realized how terrible I was, and I thank God for the fact that you are still with me. It has added to my resolve to fully change for the better. And it worked. Lynn decided to give him a chance to prove to her that he was willing to change. Uncle Mark, who was also Charlie's godfather, all but stopped going over to visit his sister at her house while Charlie was still a baby. If they wanted to get together, it had to be someplace more public where Fred would be forced to act properly, or if they were lucky, he wouldn't show up at all. He knew his sister and nephew were being treated terribly by Fred. He tried to talk to her about it, but she'd often defend Fred. And this is also common behavior of abuse victims, hiding the truth. He didn't believe her, and he finally had to draw the line He wasn't going to be willing to visit with her or Charlie anymore unless she removed herself from the situation for good. What else could he do? In lieu of being unable to do anything else, he told Lynn to bring Charlie to come visit him in Georgia as often as she could or wanted to. And then sometime in 2002, when they were visiting... That full realization of how badly his sister and nephew were being abused became apparent. Uncle Mark was in the kitchen making dinner, and for some reason he said something in a raised voice. And in the moment that he did, he saw Charlie flinch and cower. Mark adored his nephew. He loved him very deeply. Charlie was a bright and beautiful boy. And when he reacted with fear towards him, it devastated him. He knew what Fred was doing to his family. And that's when he wrote that letter to him. Lynn tells me you have addressed this repulsive behavior, that you no longer abuse women and children. But those are just words. Shame on you. Those are my words. 
Charlie still has a chance to become something wonderful, something well beyond any of us has achieved. And with his letter in hand, he took his sister to task. Mark was angry. He damned her for allowing her son to be a victim of Fred's abuse. Lynn broke down into tears and admitted that she needed to take some action, especially for Charlie's sake. He gave her the letter, and I told you that she did end up giving it to Fred. But after the funeral, when he asked Mark about it, Mark said he wanted to let it go. But he did think that that letter was a wake-up call for Lynn. After all, she did give it to Fred. And then she started bringing up the topic of divorce with Charlie. And by mid-2004, just four or five months before her death, she told Fred that she wanted to separate. So he moved out. And now, knowing all of these details of abuse, we see exactly why Lynn had the locks changed. She feared for her safety and the safety of her son. In August, she called her brother, and she was going to make him pay back a promise that he had made. If she and Fred separated, he would come to California to visit. And he told her, yes, he did indeed make that promise. And soon he booked his flight and came out to Long Beach that October. A month later, Lynn would be dead. It was one of the best visits they had had in so many years, more than Uncle Mark could count. And he had the best time ever with Charlie, showing Mark all the sights around Southern California. It was like they all felt they could begin their relationship as a family anew. And as the trip wound down, and it was time to part ways at the airport, Lynn had one last thing she wanted to tell her brother before he boarded his plane. If anything were to happen to her, please take care of Charlie. Without skipping a beat, he assured her he would. It was so haunting and so prophetic. As Lynn began looking to a brighter, happier future, free of the terror that Fred had rained down upon them all of these years, Fred was busy making sure she would not live to see a future that did not include him. He had moved in with his brother, a city over in Seal Beach, California. He became a man obsessed. Not with his marriage, not with his wife, not with his son, not with the impending divorce, no. He fixated on what a split from Lynn was going to cost him. Here in California, it's 50-50, right down the middle. And at the time, he was worth about a cool $7 million. And it was there he began hatching his plan to make sure that he would be attending a funeral and not a divorce. A year after she had first secretly shared with Charlie that she was thinking about leaving Fred, Lynn surreptitiously retained a family law attorney, Lisa Brandon. Ultimately, what Lynn wanted was a fair split of the family assets, but there was a problem. Fred controlled everything, and she was certain Fred would do everything and anything he could to make sure that she would not get a dime. Lynn was also candid with her attorney about the abuse that she and Charlie had suffered over the years. So this caused Lisa a great deal of concern. 
She suggested that she be the one to take Charlie and leave the home, but Lynn refused. So Lisa knew that Lynn was essentially a sitting duck. And Lynn understood that, but getting out of the marriage was more important than anything else. Lisa floated the idea of obtaining an order of protection, but Lynn said it would be a waste of time. If Fred was intent upon killing her, a piece of paper would not stop him. Meanwhile, Fred had an acquaintance he knew from the gym. That would be Frank Yaramillo. For whatever reason, Fred was willing to loan the guy money. Yaramillo, as I mentioned before, enjoyed living a lavish lifestyle, but he did not earn anywhere close to the kinds of money his lifestyle would cost. In the course of a year, Fred had given him somewhere between $50,000. Then in October, a month before Lynn's murder, it had been reported Fred offered him another 50000 for a favor. Help him plot the killing of his wife. And you know the rest. Back on that dreadful day, the day that Charlie lost his mom, night had fallen before they would be allowed to re-enter into the home. We listening can only imagine how Charlie was feeling. He described it as being numb. The house was quiet and empty. Everything and everyone was gone. The police wrapped everything up. Lynn's blood had been cleaned from the back patio. All that was left as a reminder of what happened earlier that morning was the mess that the killer had left in the master bedroom. There were some drawers dumped out, stuff overturned, and jewelry spilled onto the floor. At some point, Fred came to Charlie's room and told him to go into the master bedroom and tidy up the closet where the assorted jewelry had been dumped. You heard right, dreamers. He made his 14-year-old son, who lost his mother so violently just hours earlier, pick up the mess that his mother's killer left behind. At no time did he offer his son any support or related to his grief or said he was sorry. No reassurance, nothing. Just clean this mess. Pathetic. While the investigation was going on, Uncle Mark did come out to California to stay with Fred and Charlie. He really wanted to put the past in the past because he knew if he was ever going to be able to be in Charlie's life, he was going to have to make nice with Fred. His love for Charlie enabled him to overcome whatever negative feelings and resentment he harbored for Fred. And Fred still had the letter that Mark had written that he had given to Lynn, who in turn gave it to Fred two years prior to her death. Mark ripped the letter into pieces and the men embraced. He was ready to make amends and have this fresh start to move forward with this new reality with Lynn gone. Charlie, however, for his part, could not shake the feeling that his dad was somehow responsible for his mother's death. As time went on, his suspicions continued to manifest, and why wouldn't it? He had suffered a lifetime of violent outbursts and physical abuse. Follow that up with his father's frigid disposition in the wake of Lynn's death. His father abused and tormented his mother in life, 
and then failed to show even a hint of sorrow or grief for her in death. The car ride home from school the day of the killing, Charlie knew his father well enough that he was acting distraught. It was all part of the facade. And then 10 days after Lynn's murder, Charlie listened in as his father took a collect call. To him, it sounded like his dad was either speaking directly to the killer or somebody associated with the killer. The conversation was about money. I don't owe you any money. You didn't finish this. That was all Charlie needed to hear. His dad paid someone to kill his mom. It was shortly after that, Charlie asked Detective Burtz all that haunting question. How was his father involved? All Birdsall could do at the moment was assure him that they were going to work this case until everyone who had a hand in this was in jail. As it would turn out, the police were already aware of that phone call that Charlie overheard. That call was made by Detective Nelson, undercover, from the jail, pretending to be Nick Harvey. The investigation was closing in on Fred. It wouldn't be much longer. With the hitman and the middleman in police custody, armed with the evidence that they needed to prove Fred Schockner was indeed the mastermind, before they placed him under arrest for contracting the hit on his wife, there was something important detectives wanted to take care of first. Charlie. They wanted him as far away from the crosshairs as possible. While working out a plan to put the final nail in Fred's coffin, they got in touch with Uncle Mark and asked him if he could take Charlie with him to Georgia for an extended visit. Birdsall knew Fred's arrest was imminent, but Uncle Mark didn't know that, and neither did Charlie. But Mark liked the idea anyway. Birdsall insinuated that there was going to be a media circus surrounding the case, and it would be best for Charlie to be shielded from that. Of course, Mark was happy to oblige. His thoughts continued to drift back to that conversation at the airport that he had with Lynn, the one where she made that request to please take care of Charlie if anything were to happen to her. At this point, Mark's biggest concern was that Fred would use Charlie as a pawn out of vindictiveness towards him. Though Fred resisted the idea, both Mark and Detective Birdsall were telling him that it would be the best thing for Charlie right now. So Fred consented, allowing Charlie to go to Georgia with Mark, much to their surprise and relief. Fred's days as a free man were numbered. Back at the jail, Frank Garamio was singing like a bird. He told the investigators the whole story, how over the years he had taken a lot of money from Fred Schockner, and he had turned around and given a small fraction of it to Nick Harvey to kill Lynn. It took a bit of convincing on the part of detectives, but they managed to get him to agree to take part in a covert undercover sting to trap Fred. They didn't make him any promises, he just sort of agreed to help. It seemed as though Yaramil figured helping them nab Fred would get him out of hot water. Here's the thing. It didn't appear that Frank Yaramil understood just how much trouble he was actually in. Or maybe he was as clueless as Nick Harvey. Either way, he just wasn't getting it. 
You see, when he was getting set up to meet with Fred, undercover Detective Nelson was helping him prepare. At some point, Yaromio's phone rang. It was his wife wondering where he was at. He was like, oh, I'm down here at the police station. I'm helping them out with this case. They'll be home a little bit later. Yeah, he actually thought he was going home when he was done helping them out. What kind of stupid logic made him think that? Well, I'll tell you what kind of stupid logic. He didn't kill Lynn. He wasn't the one that did it, so yeah. Made the detective want to punch this guy in the face. Yaramil called Fred's house. The machine picked up. Lynn's was still the voice on the recording. He began to leave a message when Fred picked up the receiver. Yaramil told him that he wanted to meet up and talk and iron out a few things, and Fred agreed to meet with him later that evening, 7.30, at a nearby restaurant, a quaint little Chinese place that Fred, Lynn, and Charlie used to frequent. Yaramil was fitted with a body camera, and he was told what Fred might say or possible responses he might use when talking to Fred, as well as suggestions on how to move the conversation along. Police and surveillance teams surrounded the restaurant, and officers were stationed inside as well. And they waited. 7.30 came and went, and Fred hadn't shown up yet. They began to worry that he was too paranoid. But about five minutes later, the surveillance vehicle outside notified everyone that Fred had pulled up. They could see that Fred was looking dodgy, scanning the parking lot, looking for anything or anyone suspicious. In his hand, he had a notepad. Fred sat down and didn't say a word. Both men appeared worse for the wear. I guess stress of first-degree murder charges hanging over your head will do that to you. Fred began writing notes on the notepad that he brought with him. He lifted it up to show Yaramio and it said, Are you wired? Yaramio assured him that he was not. The investigators watching and listening in were getting nervous, thinking Fred was going to get spooked and get up and leave. Yaramio tried a few times to get Fred to say something incriminating. He told him that they wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him wanting Lynn dead. Fred replied that he had no idea what he was talking about. But Yaramio kept going. He made it a point to remind Fred that they wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for him and his problems with his wife. Fred, for his part, wasn't reacting much to the accusation, but he did promise that he would not leave him or Nick Harvey high and dry and told him, that they really needed to keep their cool and nothing would happen. Yaramil continued to blame Fred and Lynn for being in this quandary, telling him that he's scared and he knows that Fred is worried as well, and he continued using the strategy of blaming Lynn. And Fred agreed, adding that this is all because Nick was sloppy. And there it was, all caught on audio and video. Fred actually acknowledging Nick Harvey for the very first time since the investigation began. Yaramil was getting frustrated, and he continued, If this wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the way things were effed up by Nick. He got caught. That's him. 
He's doing time for you. You have to understand that we need to help erase this problem. You have to understand and listen to me. Fred responded to him by telling him that this wasn't his problem. It was our problem. He was still really suspicious of Yaramio and asked him a couple more times if he was wired. Finally, Yaramio asked the all-important question. What do we have to do to keep him quiet? What do I got to do to make sure he stays quiet with his family? And Fred's answer, give him money. Fred eventually conceded that he understands this is all of their problem, not just Yaramio's, but this kind of made Yaramio upset even more. Oh, really? I didn't want Lynn dead. You did. Fred said, didn't I put cash in your pocket? Yaramio kept pushing, getting more angry, to the point that it didn't seem like he was acting anymore. Who wanted her dead? Answer me that. Who wanted her dead? Who benefited from that, Fred? Fred's answer, nobody. Oh, really? Then who wanted her dead? Me? Answer me that question. Who wanted her dead? Not me. Fred replied, no, what you're doing here is to incite me into doing things. Oh, really? You keep saying this over and over again. Oh, you know what, Fred? Why don't you just go home? Whatever money I owe you, I'll pay you back. I asked you a question, and you cannot answer it. Fred started to get up and walk away, and Yaramio tried once more. Why don't you admit what you did wrong? Fred responded, I haven't done anything wrong. Yaramio retorted, okay, and I did everything right. No, you haven't done anything either. That's what you told me on the phone. Yaramio said, you have to quiet Nick's family. And then Fred finally said this. I don't have the cash for Nick's family because you have all my cash. So if you want to give me the cash, I'll give it back and you can do whatever you want. That was all police needed. It wasn't exactly what they had hoped to hear, but it was enough. They didn't arrest him on the spot at the restaurant. They allowed him to go home just to see what he might do next. If he would call anyone or make any incriminating moves because they're pretty sure Fred's worried right about now. Yaramio sat there at the table to wait for the signal from the detectives that Fred had left. As he sat there and waited for the all clear, a waiter approached the table. The Schockners were regulars. The waiter knew Fred, and he knew Lynn had been murdered. And as Yaramio waited, the waiter shared some thoughts about Lynn how nice she was, that she had a sweet sense of humor. Ironic that this waiter would be speaking to one of the men who had a hand in her death. At this point, I'm still not certain if Frank Yaramil thinks he's going home after this. But you know, and I know, he's probably never going to go home. The detectives didn't make him any promises for his help. They didn't exactly lead him to believe that they were going to charge him with anything. And they didn't exactly tell him if he was going to do them this favor and help them nail Fred that he'd be home in time for dinner. Yaramio just kind of assumed that. 
He was only 29 years old at the time. He didn't seem to have all that much going on for himself, seeing as he was managing gyms and borrowing money from Fred Schockner. But he had just gotten married to a seemingly nice woman, a school teacher. And she had no idea the kinds of trouble her husband had found himself in. No, Yaramil would not be going home to his wife. He was not going to be having a home-cooked meal that night or any night. He was immediately arrested and sent to jail. Fred went home that night, but undercover officers were keeping a close eye on him. The search of the restaurant where he and Yarmil met was searched. They were looking for those notes that Fred wrote, but they did not find them. Fred never called or reached out to anyone else that night either. But time was ticking down. Officers arrived the next morning around 9 a.m. to place Fred Schockner under arrest for Lynn's murder. And he looked a mess, as though he had hardly slept. And when they told him that they were going to arrest him, he was at first in a state of disbelief, and that slowly bled into a state of anger. And when they searched his home, they found the notes he had written at the restaurant the previous night. At least one of them had the words, Sloppy Nick, scrawled onto it. And back in Georgia, Charlie and his family got word that Fred was in custody. And Charlie found himself in an unusual place with it. Elated. Elated that his father was in prison, and probably will be for the rest of his life, for ordering the murder of his mother. There's no other way to put it. When you lived in existence as Charlie and Lynn had under the harsh and abusive rule of a man like Fred Schockner, this finally felt like a bit of redemption, a measure of justice. Three years after Lynn's murder, the trials began. Nick Harvey went on trial first. He seemed pretty well put together, all things considered. He had already come to the realization that he was never going to breathe another breath of free air for as long as he lived. And as I had pointed out earlier in the episode, this man was not the brightest. I mean, the lights are on, but nobody's home. He testified at his own trial in his own defense, and he told the jury that he had always dreamed of being a hitman. Yeah, he said that in open court. He went on. When he was a child, his idol was the Incredible Hulk, and he used steroids in order to achieve muscle mass. Yeah, so it only took the jury 35 minutes to return with their verdict, guilty of first-degree murder and robbery. Next up was Frank Yaramillo. Unlike Nick Harvey, he came to court pretty downtrodden. He wasn't dealing well with the fact that he was going to be living inside a jail cell for the rest of his life if convicted. But he had a strategy to lay the full responsibility for Lynn's murder on Fred. He got on the witness stand and claimed that Fred had loaned him a large sum of money. And when he was unable to pay him back, Fred began telling him he could clear up his debts if he did this one thing, you know, kill his wife. And on top of that, Fred started threatening him, telling him that he was going to do harm to his wife and his family. 
So this guy is painting himself as this martyr. Here he is laying down his life in order to save his family. It was laughable at best. Knowing it was Lynn that was sacrificed for everybody's financial gain. The jury wasn't having it. Guilty, first degree murder. Next. Last but not least, Fred Schachner went on trial. He too would take the stand in his own defense as well. How did he defend himself, you ask? Well, he said this was all one big, huge misunderstanding. A misinterpretation of the context of the evidence, of which there was a mountain. The money he gave to Yarmio was for a BMW. And those frequent calls to Yarmio around the time that Lynn was killed? Butt dials. Well, the jury didn't buy any of this nonsense either and sprinted to a guilty verdict after 20 minutes of deliberations. At his sentencing, the judge was quite astute in his assessment of Fred Schockner, calling him a disgusting human being. Today, Nick Harvey is 37 years old, Frank Yarmio is 44, and Fred Schockner is 78. All three of them are serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. Fred actually made good on his promise to sue the Long Beach Police Department for failing to prevent Lynn's murder. You know, when they didn't stop the guy that he had hired from killing his wife. A judge took one look at Fred's lawsuit and tossed it into the garbage with absolutely no hesitation whatsoever. And Fred did not stop there, as he continued from behind bars to fight for his money. Against his own son, nonetheless. Though I doubt, dreamers, anything I reveal about this man is a surprise to any of you. He did all he could to prevent Charlie from prevailing in a wrongful death lawsuit. Though Charlie was awarded a portion of the family estate, Fred was able to retain millions of dollars for himself. What he's going to do with that from behind bars? Your guess is as good as mine. In a phone conversation with a reporter... Nick Harvey said that he's had a lot of time to grow up in prison. You think? He reflected back on where he was at life at the age of 22 when he stabbed and slashed Lynn Schockner. He felt like he was an angry person. Perhaps. I don't know how or why someone can become so angry that it manifests itself into a homicidal rage at such a young age. Something in his upbringing, maybe steroids, who knows. But it wasn't really anger that brought him there that day to kill Lynn. It was money. For what it's worth, Nick Harvey has seemingly accepted responsibility. And he's even floated the theory that somehow the police were involved because of how they were there waiting for him when he went over that wall. Bloody dagger in hand. But you know, he's got nothing but time to ruminate over stuff like that. And when asked about Charlie, Harvey said, Oh, Charlie. He, what I did to Charlie is, it haunts me every day. I took so much from him. Is this genuine regret? Each of you listening may take it however you like. It's more than what Charlie's father was willing to acquiesce. He would continue to maintain his innocence to this day. 
Since Fred was arrested, Charlie had been staying with his uncle Mark and his wife Aunt Susan, exactly what Lynn had wanted. He also set aside plenty of time with his mom's other brother John and his wife Elizabeth. It took some time and some counseling, and Charlie would go on to be raised into adulthood by his sister's loving brother, who ironically sees Charlie as the greatest thing to have been given to him from the man that he hates the most in the world. And Uncle Mark and Aunt Susan had never had children of their own until Charlie was gifted to them. They shed those titles of aunt and uncle and became mom and dad. As Charlie Schockner is no more, he's now Charlie Jika, the family name of his mother and he will carry that on, refusing to allow the morally inferior half of his biology to define him. In Uncle Mark's letter to Fred, he wrote all those years ago, he said, Charlie has a chance to become something wonderful, something well beyond any of us has achieved. He knew that those words would one day come true. And that brings this 81st episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case or any of the other cases we've talked about on this show, please come over to the Facebook page and join the discussion group. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime aficionados who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries, books, Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I'm very proud to be a part of this amazing group of show and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, or if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Every sixty seconds, a person is murdered somewhere in the world. There was a shootout in my house. I can't believe it. What causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things? He stabbed me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast that examines the most disturbing criminal minds. We shed a light on the devastating impact these violent crimes have on the victims and their families. When you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. You'll hear about the incredible strength of the survivors and what they did to fight back. 
I was studying his face because I was thinking, if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Subscribe to the Minds of Madness podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.